Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas, arts editor of the TLS. And that's it, I'm afraid, uh, because our usual co-host, Alex Clark, has been suddenly struck down with COVID, which is still happening. So uh, she can't join us this week. So it's just me. We've got lots of wonderful things lined up. So do bear with me. Uh, I'm not going to chat with myself at the beginning of this, because that would be weird. But I'm going to tell you about a letter we got from a listener this week. Um, I don't know if I can use his full name, so I'm just going to say John. We got a letter from John referring to our recent item when we were talking about books made of odd things, among them a mortadella, which I was excited by, and cheese. Um, so John says, your recent item on books made from strange materials, not least cheese, reminded me of a couple of libraries I came across in Tibet. One comprised entirely of volumes made from slate, and another with its tomes made from cloth. He's attached a couple of pictures of those, and they're really beautiful, especially the ones with the books made of cloth. So anything can be a book, I think, is the moral of the story. Now, coming up on this week's show. We look at the friendships of the apparently alpha male Duke of Wellington, whose friends were, perhaps surprisingly, female. But first, we're going to have dinner. It's the late 18th century, our dinner is at three o'clock, and the food, I'm afraid, is not great, but the company is. We might be dining with Mary Wollstonecraft, William Blake, Henry Fuseli, Joseph Priestley, and William Wordsworth, for instance, because we are having dinner with Joseph Johnson, the publisher who knew, published, and fed all these people and many more. He's the subject of a new book, a group biography called Dinner with Joseph Johnson, Books and Friendship in a Revolutionary Age by Daisy Hay. Daisy Hay is also writing about Charles Lamb for us in the paper this week, so it all ties up. Dinner with Joseph Johnson has been expertly reviewed for us this week by Catherine Sutherland, and we're delighted that she joins us today to talk it through. Catherine, many thanks for joining us. Hello, it's a great pleasure. I'm very happy to be here. We're very happy to have you. 
Can we start by talking about Joseph Johnson? Who was he and how how did he come to be at the centre of this extraordinary group of writers and thinkers? Yes, yes. This is an extraordinarily generous and capacious book. It's filled with personalities and stories. And a bit like a multi-plot Dickens novel, the character at its centre is, is almost the least knowable of any of the characters there, and that's Joseph Johnson. So Daisy Hay has quite a challenge to, to, um, to find Joseph Johnson. Um, a little bit of background, perhaps, first. We're, we're in London. We're in London between 1760 and 1810. These are the years in which Johnson is running his business as a publisher and bookseller. And we're in the old city of London, which had been at the heart of the book trade since medieval times, centred around St Paul's and St Paul's Churchyard. And this time, 1760 to 1810, it's a time of social, political and cultural change across Britain and abroad. There's discontent in the American colonies. There's revolution brewing across the channel in France. And it's also time of huge change in the printing industry an unprecedented expansion of those able to read and a corresponding explosion in all kinds of reading matter, not just books, but periodicals, pamphlets, newspapers. It's a world in which to write and to read is to take up an ideological position. And the close of the century saw war and threats of war with America, with France. It saw civil unrest and it saw press censorship which reinforced emerging divisions in, in reading and its target audiences. So society and its modes of communication, as it were, even the limits of what could be imagined were being reset by print. So what's going on is a revolution in public consciousness. And Joseph Johnson is right at the heart of this, bookseller and publisher for 50 years, roughly 1760 to 1809. And his business is a magnet, as, as, as you've suggested already, Lucy, for a remarkable group of writers, mainly, though not all, of liberal and progressive views. They're dedicated to making change happen and to making what they believe will be a better word, world through ideas and through print. So they're writing not just on politics, but on medicine, mathematics, science, education, women's rights. And Johnson is the man who makes a space for their books and their conversation. But in fact, we know very little about Johnson himself. He's left very little personal trace beyond the minimal title page imprint. Um, and on his books, you have this regular imprint, J. Johnson, number 72, St. Paul's Churchyard. And that's, of course, the focus of Daisy Hayes' book, What is Going On at Number 72, St Paul's Churchyard. There's been a, a previous biography of, of, of Johnson back in 1979 by Gerald Tyson, and more recently in 2003, Helen Braithwaite has looked at romanticism, publishing and dissent and the world around Johnson. Um, and very recently, too, John Bug has uh, published... Uh, what was what appeared just really from nowhere in 1994, which was a crucial piece of evidence about Joseph Johnson. And that was the Joseph Johnson letter book, um, a selection of letters that um, 
Johnson made copies of, of his outgoing correspondence. We know that Johnson, in fact, destroyed most of his business records, but we have these 200 letters that came to light in 1994 and Bug uh, published in 2016, giving us some idea of, of Johnson's dealings in really the last 10 years of, of his business. Can I ask about the the part of his background? He came from, um, or he he became, I'm not sure, a, a dissenter, didn't he? And that was very important. And did that, did that mean that if you were a dissenter, you were you were by definition a bit of a radical, ju- just for being? You were a bit of an outsider. It certainly meant you were liberal and progressive. Yes, a radical. Mm. So he, we know he was born in November 1738 in in Everton near Liverpool. And he was the second son of a Baptist landowner and businessman. And by 1753, he turns up in London, where he's apprenticed to a man called George Keith, who is a Baptist publisher. So he's moving from from birth in Baptist circles. And Baptists were part of the dissenting community. Yeah, okay. it was a broad community, basically everyone who wasn't Church of England and didn't follow Church of England orthodoxy. And it did mean that you were an outsider in various ways. For instance, um, the grammar schools, the traditional grammar schools were close to you. Also certain professions and you didn't have access to Oxford and Cambridge. You were marginalised. I mean, there were real effects. Uh, yeah, being yeah sure. You were marginalised. Career opportunities were limited. At the same time, though, this dissenting community has deep roots and it's been going on for a long, long time, you know, since since the 16th century almost. And um, it's got its own intellectual momentum and it had its own dissenting academies. And from very early on, Joseph Johnson is publishing the writings of the, the of those who were nurtured in or taught in the um, the dissenting academies. And one of the first, of course, that he works with is very close to Liverpool, where Joseph Priestley was uh, a teacher and where John Aiken was a pupil. And John Aiken's sister, um, Anna Barbold, Anna Aiken, later Barbold, um, was also a vigorous intellectual presence. But we know that right from the start, you know, he's working, he's an apprentice, a seven year apprentice to um, a Baptist publisher of religious tracts. and. That immediately, I think, gives us a sense that, you know, for the Baptists, books were not just articles of commerce. Sure, they were that, but they were also articles of faith. And the Mm. printing press was a means of disseminating knowledge widely. So they had a very democratic view of the importance of of learning and of its spread. Um, we know that by by the age of 22 in 1761, he set up his own shop and and very quickly he has a bestseller in 1764. And that's John Newton's uh, book, An Authentic Narrative, which was a bit like a Robinson Crusoe story in a way. And John Newton was uh, a former slave trader turned Church of England minister. We, we perhaps know him best now for... Um, for the fact that he introduced William Cooper, the poet, to to Joseph Johnson, and Johnson became Cooper's um, Cooper's publisher too. But this this book by by Newton was a runaway success in 1764, and and basically it was a combination of conversion narrative 
and romance and politics and tales of maritime adventure when, um, you know, covering the time when Newton was in fact a slave trader. Does Newton repent of being a slave trader? He does repent. Well, he converts to um, and he becomes a, a, an Anglican minister and, and repents in that sense. But the book is um, extraordinary in, in, in the way it, it also uses those adventures very openly and, uh, and, and to create excitement in the reader. Clearly from an early age, Johnson, he's a great facilitator. So hence the three o'clock dinners. Was that a thing that he kind of formally set up? I mean, he is just a great enabler. He is one of the great enablers of, of the this extraordinary world of, of, of print, which is the, uh, the Romantic era. Um, and so he's sitting at the heart of this, this, this world, uh, this world. We know that, um, I mean, he doesn't move into 72 St. Paul's until um, 1770 because his previous premises were destroyed, completely destroyed by, by fire. Um, mm. um, so he's, he's in um, 72 St. Paul's churchyard by, the 70, by 1770 and he seems very quickly to have established the place um, as, as, a, as a meeting point. And of course, booksellers, shops, publishers' shops were meeting points regularly at, at that time. But um, what distinguishes him is, is, is perhaps two things. One, that some of his writers seem regularly to have stayed with him. So when Mary Wollstonecraft fetches up in London in, in um, 1787, she, she just comes to his door, bangs on the door. He takes her in and she, she stays there for a few weeks till she finds lodgings. Um, Joseph Priestley the, from the Warrington Academy stayed there quite regularly and Henry Fuseli was, was a long-term inmate of 72 St Paul's Churchyard. So he ran the place, I, I suppose an equivalent might be, you know, a little like Shakespeare and Company in, the, in 1920s Paris. He gave refuge and both financial and material support of all kinds to writers mm -hmm in the place is that is that part of what the dinners were actually just feeding people they were just feeding people for sure yeah um but also they were just a regular weekly meeting um the three o'clock dinner um every week he would would offer these dinners to um whatever writers were passing through and in town so just to absolutely drag things down to the very material level what did they eat at the three o'clock dinners <laughs> Well, apparently it was an unvarying menu, and it sounds like our sort of worst nightmares of school dinners, actually. It was boiled fish. It was mm -hmm. roast veal. That sounds quite nice. But mm -hmm. boiled vegetables and rice pudding. It doesn't sound great, does it? No, a constant dinner. The constant dinner was, you know, extremely nourishing, no doubt. But I imagine that many of the guests were there for the conversation it was very important, wasn't it? The idea, it's not just, it's not just about kind of chit chat, how are you? The idea of the exchange of, of ideas and views, differing ideas and views, and that you kind of argue your case, that was, that was extremely important at the time, wasn't it? Extremely important at the time and, and deep roots in, in dissenting theology too. And the dissenters did dissent, they debated. Um, and there was a strong, there was a strong conviction amongst the different groups of, of, of dissenters, of all these non, you know, non-orthodox groups, that you had to find your own way to understanding. So independent thought, but independent thought through debate 
and conversation with others. So through association, through listening and learning, keeping an open mind, being liberal. So we can see that that background was very important. I mean, crucial yeah. really to the, to, to the setting up of it. And how important was the revolutionary aspect? Because the book subtitle says a revolutionary age. And it, as you say, it was revolutionary in all sorts of ways. I mean, in very literal ways yeah. in France, but also, also, as you say, intellectually. And technologically, you know, with the innovations in book production and with new formats coming out as well, more newspapers, more periodicals. We know that, you know, Johnson himself established um, his own periodical, the Analytical Review, in um, 1788 as a, as a kind of monthly debating forum and a mix of reviews, essays, new books, um, articles of, on medicine, music, natural sciences, as well as poetry and reviews of novels and so on. It was a, it was a, a huge mix. Um, yes, many of, of um, I mean, the analytical review itself, which was, you know, the, the periodical from his shop, it was generally um, critical of the reactionary British government and generally supportive of revolutionary ideas in um, America and France, as were Johnson's authors, the writers on his list. It's very interesting, I think, and enlivening the fact that, as you say, it's not just, they're not just talking about um, literature or, um, or, or poetry. It's, it's really, in, uh, the advances are also being made in, in medicine and science and, and all these areas. And they're just as much, they're just as live, aren't they? Just they're, they're treated around the same table. Yeah, that's right. They are. So, you know, at any one dinner, you might have Henry Fuseli there, you know, who the, the um, Johnson's lifelong friend, um, who's Swiss emigre, who was an illustrator, he was a writer, he was a, a painter, but you would also have Joseph Priestley, who was an extraordinary polymath and scientist. Mm. Um, he, he was, in fact, nominated as official scientist on Captain Cook's second expedition. But because of his beliefs, the uh, nomination was overturned by, by, by the authorities. So you'd have them, him there. You might have his pupil, John Aiken, who was a medic who had trained in the Warrington Academy and then went on to Edinburgh University who wrote uh, what seems to us a, a, a remarkably commonsensical book on, on uh, how to treat patients in hospital, but was, was actually really quite revolutionary at the time, you know, suggesting that you might open the windows and air the beds and uh, get them to the, the patients to walk around a little bit. As you say, it seems like common sense, yeah. but actually that, that didn't happen for quite no, a while. Didn't. Did it? No, I mean, Florence Nightingale's saying the same thing a century later, isn't she? And so you have educationalists, you have writers for children as well. This was a burgeoning area in the 18th century. And Johnson was one of the leading publishers in the um, in the field for, of children's writing. Um, so, so, yes, a huge mix. So you at any one dinner, you might have had you know, a couple of pol political thinkers, a philosopher, a mathematician and a poet mm. all sort of debating together and finding common ground. And as you say, he was, I mean, we, we, you were talking about particularly Mary Wollstonecraft, but a great champion of women writers and also, as we touched on, interested in the abolitionist movement. Yes, he was a supporter of the abolitionists, as were so many of his writers, mm. of course. And you, you think not just of Newton, but of, of, 
of, of William Cooper. Um, throughout his career, his list features women writers, and I think that's really a, one of the most interesting aspects of him um, for us. Um, 1774, so that's quite early on, he publishes Mary Scott's The Female Advocate. Um, and in the 1770s and 80s and 90s, he's publishing Sarah Trimmer, who actually is a high Anglican, uh, but he's publishing her writings, mm. um, her books for children, and he's publishing Wollstonecraft and Barbold. And then in the 1800s, when Wollstonecraft is dead, he's publishing Charlotte Smith, who was one of the most popular writers of the time, and Mariah Edgeworth. And throughout, he's reprinting Barbold's books, you know, her, her most popular works, things like Lessons for Children, went through multiple editions, were a kind of you know, nursery staple oh. right through into the 1810s. And so even when she's not producing new books, he's, she's still part of his list. Does the group biography approach work? Does it? I mean, you say it's difficult to, to, to shed light on him, but does, does it shed light on Joseph Johnson himself? I think it's quite interesting because in the end, it's a kind of, it's a biography of personalities and of strong personalities who are circling round a man whose personality is hard to yes. find. So that's one thing. And the other thing, of course, is that it, in a sense, it's a, a biblio biography because it's a biography of books I, I I found this quite exciting really I when I was reading the book and when I was trying to write the review a phrase that was buzzing in my head was something that I just read actually it's it was was apparently something that Eleanor Ferranti yeah. said that enigmatic Italian mm-hmm. novelist in in the New York Times and she's credited there with saying I believe that books once they are written have no need of authors and as readers we can take that kind of statement two ways can't we we can focus on the book itself and what we learn from it you know by contrast it can stimulate us even more wanting to know about this unknowable person And here we have Johnson, the unknowable publisher. The authors and the books he brought into the light are his legacy. But then his ability has a kind of power and charm. And you keep being drawn back into this kind of question mark all the time as you're reading this book. And I found that in a way one one, one of the most generous aspects of the book. I mean, it's generous in that it has a huge cast of personalities but also it's generous in that it doesn't try to close things down or attach labels. You know, what we know about Johnson is fairly minimal, and it's also minimal in, in some other intriguing areas. And and Hay draws our attention to these other gaps. For instance, what really was Johnson's relationship to Fuseli? Now, Fuseli arrives very early in Johnson's life, and he's there to the end. What was his relationship to Mary Wollstonecraft? Previous biographers have tried to suggest what these relationships might have been. Mm. And one of the things I like about Hayes' book is the fact that she doesn't try to close things down. She, she allows imagination to swirl around these possible relationships. I mean, Godwin, 
apparently thought um, and, and said in his memoir of Wollstonecraft that was published in um, 1798 by, by Johnson, Godwin actually says there that Johnson was almost a father to Wollstonecraft. Right. Hayne refuses that. She refuses to close it down. She argues instead that, you know, Johnson, as an outsider himself, understood the importance to Mary Wollstonecraft of making her own way in the world, in a world that was a man's world, that, you know, she too was an outsider in a certain kind mm. of world. And she he refuses to to pin things down. And instead what you have is, is a biography that's a kind of a conversation, an ongoing conversation with different points of view being put forward at different moments. We, we, one of the nice things about it is the dining room that you, and you return to it every 10 years. And she has this small vignette where she describes the dining room 10 years on and who might have been in it. And in between these vignettes, then you have, you know, what really is a, a fairly straightforward bibliobiography of what, mm. what Johnson is publishing in, the, in that period. But I found those vignettes, um, they really are, um, they do catch the imagination, the idea that you have many voices and it, you see Johnson, as it were, through a prism. Mm. And in a way that he, he was kind of an outsider who's got himself at the centre of actually an enormous amount of things. And yeah, I think that's a really good way of describing it. And how do you describe an outsider at the centre? You know, where exactly is he? Is he outside or is he inside? There are lots of other kind of literary, um, you know, catalysts and facilitators and things. But but there's often quite a lot of ego involved. That's right. We, we yeah. often know quite a bit about them because they want to, to be known themselves as well. But yeah. there really doesn't seem to be here. You don't have that sense at all. You don't have that sense at all. You have the sense of a, a rather humble man. In fact, one of the things that when I, you know, was reading the book, I started doing my own little bit of research around him. And one mm. of the things that I found most interesting and most moving was um, John Aiken, the, the pupil from the Warrington Academy, the pupil of Priestley, who then published with, with Johnson, who wrote a short obituary of Johnson for the December 1809 issue of the Gentleman's Magazine, Johnson, Johnson Dies um, in 1809. Mm. And it, it's very short, but he describes there a man whose house and purse were always open to the calls of friendship, kindred or misfortune. A man who was neither sanguine nor pushing, um, in either in his temperament nor in his attitude to authors. And already you have, you know, by somebody who knew him very well. You have this sense of, of a person who was receding into the shade, mm. a man who didn't push himself forward. Mm. The other thing that Aiken mentions, and I think it is worth saying something about, is um, that Johnson was a great innovator, really, in book design. Um, he says one of the things that Johnson wanted to do, this was an age where book prices were incredibly fluctuating and new works could be particularly expensive and outside the reach of most people. And Aiken says, you know, Johnson did his best to drive down costs. And sometimes his authors didn't like the result, he says, but he made sure that the book circulated widely. So he was interested in, in reaching as wide a readership as possible. One of his great innovations, of course, was in um, printing children's books, and he and Anna Barbold worked together 
to produce a page design that would actually be appealing to a child. Books before Johnson didn't really do that. But instead he gives, you know, he leaves lots of white space and he has large type and it's an unfussy page. It's a page that invites a child in. So I think Johnson as a as an innovator in, in book design is also worth thinking about too. Mm. Well, it sounds like we have him to thank for many, many things <laughs> that this rather enigmatic figure That's right. at the centre of the wonderful circle. But Kevin Sutherland, many thanks for talking to us about him today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. on the show. Did you know that the conqueror of Napoleon at Waterloo, the Iron Duke of Wellington, was widely known and often mocked as a man who preferred the company of women? Nor did we. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details
Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now we're still talking about friendships, but of a different kind in different circles and in the next generation or so along. There is a new exhibition at Apsley House in London, known as the Duke of Wellington's Mansion, which still has quarters for the current Duke of Wellington, I believe. And the title of this exhibition is Wellington Women and Friendship. Now, as our reviewer Boyd Tonkin points out, there has been plenty of gossip and rumour about Wellington and women over the past two centuries, but very little mention of friendship. We're delighted that Boyd can join us today to tell us about a lesser known side of the so-called Iron Duke. Boyd, thanks very much for coming on. Not at all. I'm very, very pleased to be here. As you say, the Duke of Wellington, Arthur Wellesley, he was dogged by rumours of affairs throughout his life, wasn't he? But can you tell us about this other side that the exhibition wants to highlight, about his friendships with women? Bear in mind that Wellington was born in 1769. He lived until 1852. So he started as a Georgian. He finished as a Victorian. And his outlook was, I think, very much determined by his early life as a professional soldier, a professional soldier of the Georgian and Regency period. Uh, in many cases, gossip would not have bothered him too much. After all, this was what um, swaggering warriors were supposed to do. And a trail of rumours was not necessarily uh, any kind of uh, deficit or drawback to the ambitious soldier. What's really unusual about Wellington is how many of these associations, uh, whether they were affairs or not, develop into proper friendships. And that is untypical for a man of his status at his time. So how how does the exhibition go about showing that th- th- these are friendships? Well, it, it's, um, it, it's, it's quite a small exhibition, but, but it's very, very revealing. Basically, there are two rooms. One in the basement galleries uh, is uh, taken up with documents. In other words, with um, uh, the journals of his uh, women confidants, um, with letters to and from Wellington and some other contemporary materials such as caricatures. And of course, um, uh, Wellington was endlessly caricatured and often in an extremely ribald and mocking light. And then upstairs, which is perhaps the, the heart of the exhibition, is a room full of portraits of the women of uh, Wellington's extended family and of these friends, these confidants with whom he kept up such a close relationship in many cases um, over decades. And these have largely been borrowed. So in other words, it's the women who would have known Apsley House being reunited there for probably the first time Uh, since uh, Wellington uh, lived in the house. You talk about the reputation, well, there's two sides of it, as you say, there's the kind of, oh, he's had lots of affairs and that wouldn't necessarily be um, particularly noteworthy, nor would it necessarily bother him, as you say. Uh, But then the the other side of it was that at the time, 
um, it was known, wasn't it? And, and sort of rather disparagingly talked about the fact that he was friends with women. You mentioned that Robert Peel said, no man has any influence with him. He is led by women. Oh, yes. Well, this, this is what is perhaps most unusual about these friendships in that they were, they were not simply, um, as it were, relaxation after the heat of battle and later the heat of politics. Um, uh, he was using his women friends as um, uh, political interlocutors. They were talking to him about affairs of state. He was taking their advice, not only on domestic, but on public matters as well. Now, it's important to bear in mind that, that these women were not, in general, uh, part of what we would think uh, as the the, um, the advance guard of, of um, uh, uh, emancipated um, female thinkers of the time. They were part of his circle, which was Tory and aristocratic, and quite conventional. But nevertheless, they were people who had a very, very lively interest and knowledge of politics. And he would consult them, and he would often be guided by them, although not always. I mean, there is a um, uh, one exhibit in the exhibition is uh, of his response to perhaps the, the most, um, his favourite confidant, um, Harriet Arbuthnot. And Harriet, although she was a Tory, was in favour of the Great Reform Act of 1832. And of course, Wellington, the diehard reactionary, was initially against it, although he later modified his opinion. And he writes to her saying, if you don't mind, on this occasion, I won't take your advice but I'll stick with my own opinion. But the very fact that he writes it shows that there were occasions on which he did take her advice. Yes, and, and that sounds like a proper back and forth. He's listened yes. listened properly to what she said and yes. taken it seriously, but said actually on reflection. I was going to ask you about the, the kind of reactionary side because difficult for us to think about him now, about what a huge kind of hero he was. And then, as you say, he was rather, he was sort of considered as a very, very conservative, wasn't he? Small and big C, rather reactionary. Do you think this shows another side? Because it was unusual, especially in a soldier, and then I guess a politician, to 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 take women sort of seriously and have proper friendships, wasn't it? It, it was, uh, and uh, this is what makes him such an interesting figure. He is divided between this public persona, which becomes increasingly obdurate and conservative and opposed to all the reforms and changes of the age, maybe with one exception, which that, which that uh, he helped to get the Catholic Emancipation Bill through, and this perhaps is related to his Irish mm. background. Um, but in private, he has this much greater sense of emotional flexibility. He listens, he's close to women, he treats them as equals in the realm of friendship uh, that they create. And you realise that, that um, he is a he lives in the same emotional world as the poets he so despised, the Byrons, the Shelleys, mm. and so forth, the, the people he thought were, were, were really uh, beneath contempt. And there's a very interesting link between Wellington 
and Lord Byron, whom you can otherwise think of his as of as his absolute antithesis. Um, and it's that Lady Caroline Lamb was very keen on both of them at different <laughs> kinds. Excellent. It's <laughs> a good link. It's. I, I wonder, though, I mean, did Byron have proper female friendships? It sounds as though actually Wellington might have taken women more seriously than Byron did. That's an excellent point, and I think you're right. I think in terms of um, long-haul um, sharing of emotions, sharing of ideas, meeting of minds. Uh, I think Wellington is the more genuine romantic rather than Byron. Well, that's not something you hear every day, is it? <laughs> no. no um, and you say that the exhibition wisely avoids the kind of gossipy, did they, didn't they kind of narrative when it's talking about the, the, the individual women that he was particular friends with. Um, yes, but largely because it is completely uh, irresolvable. I mean, uh, uh, contemporaries assumed that um, he was having, uh, he was jumping into bed with all of these women. Um, and uh, clearly at the time, especially in the 1820s and 1830s, you have a very, very scurrilous um, uh, popular media through uh broadsheets through caricatures uh, and so on uh, and it's very keen to to um to mock the 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 randy old duke of wellington uh, so there's a caricature of him um uh, sort of sitting astride the huge uh, barrel of a cannon and there's a lady in her by saying oh bless me what a spanker um and, <laughs> and it really that there's this kind of carry on Carry on, Duke uh, element. Seaside postcard kind of thing. Completely, yes. Um, but also, um, I think it would be equally mistaken to say, oh, they were all uh, perfectly proper um, platonic uh, 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 friendships with, with um, often with respectable married ladies. I, I think the truth is probably in some cases there was a sexual element in other cases, um, uh, there was not. Uh, the interesting thing about Wellington is that um, uh, whether it existed or not does not seem to have affected the way he treated his women friends, which again is something that's, that actually sounds quite modern uh, as opposed to, to the very strict divisions of um, uh, early 19th century uh, sexual attitudes where, where uh, women very much would have been um, uh, divided into the respectable and unrespectable and treated as such. And um, there's one particular woman that we haven't mentioned yet, which is his wife. Um, you say she's a kind of, a, a, she's a rather sad figure in the middle of this, but this casts a bit of light on her, is that right? Well, this is one of the, the really uh, illuminated aspects of the exhibition, that, that she is so much in the shadows. It's a terrible marriage from the outset. For a start, it's delayed for about 10 years. And when they finally marry in 1806, um, Wellington knows that it, from the off that he's made a mistake. And he, he neglects her. Uh, He's very sharp and short with her. Um, he realised that, that 
she is never going to be the kind of, of um, uh, conversational partner that he needs in his military and political career. And for her part, Kitty, Kitty Pakenham, she's stuck at home, she's depressed, she's um, lonely, uh, she's idle, and her letters really make very, very sad reading. Um, so we shouldn't forget that, that all of the, these um, really quite sparkling and profound friendships are built on the very, very sad bedrock of a completely failed marriage. He didn't find that companionship with Herb, and I suppose he was able to find it with other people, but she wasn't, I guess, because her circle would be so much more more circumscribed than his. Well, yes. I mean, he, he says in a letter to Harriet Arbuthnot that um, uh, I was never in love with her. I married her because they told me to and I didn't know myself, uh, which is the most appalling and devastating revelation. But it also, it also I think, shows the degree of self-knowledge that he brought to these friendships. Yes, and he can't have been, as you say, if it, if it was put off for 10 years, he, he wasn't just a, a young man who didn't know anything. He can't have been, can he? If it was, um, it was kind of social convention that pushed him into it, wasn't it? it? It was social convention. It was the desire for respectability. It was the, the very fragile nature of his family background. Now, if you say that, that Wellington was a, an Anglo-Irish aristocrat, that's perfectly true but it doesn't capture the sheer insecurity of many of his class their prospects in the world were not guaranteed he wasn't an an oldest son he was a a a middle son his father was a rather interesting and eccentric character who was basically a musician he became professor of music at Trinity College Dublin. So actually not, not that respectable being a musician in those days, really. Not at all, especially if you have a title and, and you were expected just to... to um, Do a proper job. <laughs> to, 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 to swan around be, being a nobleman. Um, oh, yes, yes. So all of this connects with Wellington's pursuit of solidity and respectability. Uh, which, of course, he managed to find through his military career uh, and to some extent through his marriage. But nothing about his progress was given. Nothing was guaranteed. Right. It's funny because seeing him from this side of things, you just think he's a kind of, you know, as I say, the kind of immutable, heroic, and then he he seems completely solid and... um, I don't know what the word is, uh, inevitable, but that's not the case at all then. No, I, I think, um, uh, of course, the really interesting comparison, Wellington, born in Ireland in 1769 to this um, uh, uh, rather insecure family with aristocratic um, ancestry, uh, there's someone else born on an island in 1769. I think I know where you're heading. To uh, an insecure family with some aristocratic connections. And that, of course, is um, uh, Signor Bonaparte, um, who became his his nemesis, his other, his counterpart in every possible way. Yes. And that was that was part of 
uh, I read something that they called him, the, I can't remember who it was, called him the world victor's victor. He just, because everybody was so terrified of Napoleon at one point, and the fact that Wellington was very much involved in his downfall meant that he did have an unshakable position, didn't he? Well, he had an unshakable position, not only in Britain, but um, across the whole of Europe. I mean, if you look at his... Um, political interests and what he's talking about with these women, uh, especially in the years after Waterloo, uh, their uh, coverage, their their span of attention really encompasses the whole of Europe. He he really was the the opposite of uh, a little England. Uh, He had the, the this notion of the concept of Europe, of what was necessary to to establish and secure peace uh, from Russia to Portugal, um, in his mind constantly. Mm. And and of the these women um, who we talked to, you've you've mentioned a couple. Were there were there were there particular ones? Was it was it was there a sort of small handful that 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 stayed with him for a long time? I, I think so. Perhaps Harriet Arbuthnot is is the most important uh, in terms of the sheer uh, depth and consistency of their communication. But there are also very uh, other uh, many many other uh, important figures, such as his um, American friend Marianne Patterson, who uh, he clearly um, loved quite deeply and commissioned a portrait. Uh, both of um, himself and of her from Thomas Lawrence. Um, And weirdly, Marianne ends up marrying his widowed elder brother, Richard. So um, she concludes as um, his uh, sister-in-law, which is a rather kind of strange outcome uh, to to this uh, relationship. Then there's, for instance, uh, uh, Princess Levin, who was the the wife of the Russian uh, ambassador and very much a diplomatic player in her own right. And someone else who had this um, panoramic grasp of European politics and knowledge of how to intervene. Uh, And then late in his life, there's the very, very interesting figure of um, Angela Burdett Coutts. He became known a bit later as one of the greatest of Victorian philanthropists. And in the 1830s, when she's in her 30s and um, he is uh, in his, uh, I think, late 70s, um, uh, she ends up uh, proposing to him uh, and he, in in a rather gentle, grandfatherly way, discreetly uh, uh, just uh, pushes her own way and says, don't be silly, Uh, I'm old enough to to be your grandfather. But I think the relationship with um, Angela Burdett Coutts indicates that he was possible, he was able to uh, inspire a very, very high degree of loyalty and affection uh, uh, from women really well into old age. Mm -hmm. And there must have been something behind that. I mean, he couldn't just have been the rather uh, gruff, monosyllabic, um, terse, uh, uh, soldierly figure who appears in some memoirs of the period. No, because that well and all the letters and the correspondence shows that 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 can't have been the case. 
So um, after seeing this exhibition, do you has it changed your view of him a bit? Do you think differently about him now? Well, I, I did know the background to some of this material, uh, but on the other hand, I think it it, um, it widens the picture for anyone, even if you think you know a little about Wellington, and certainly if you, if all you know about Wellington is the um, uh, the kind of stalwart military. Uh, uh, victor, the um, uh, vanquisher of Napoleon, of Napoleon uh, the reactionary prime minister of the 1820s and 1830s, it will, I think, make a, a huge difference to, to the way that you view him. It just, it's such a lovely idea that, that deep down he was a romantic. <laughs> Even a romantic with a small R or a capital R. Well, I, I think he... he he detested the romantics of the big art, but uh, yeah. as you say, privately, maybe there was a quite a lot of small R romantic there. <laughs> well, it's, it's good to think about him that way. Boyd Tonkin, many thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Lucy. is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Catherine Sutherland and Boyd Tonkin. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Sophia Franklin. We'll be back next week, but for now, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.